0: Just like Jesus was raised up, so I had to raise that podium up just at this moment. There are all kinds of applications uh, for the resurrection. Such a joy to be with you today. And uh, man, I'm just so blessed, so blessed to be among you today. Thank you to all of you who have contributed and already made this such a special time. Uh, These things that we've uh, listened to today that we've recited, that we've seen and heard, they're there so that we might believe. And that by believing, we might truly have eternal life and enter into that life. And that is an uh, incredible invitation. We're going to talk about that, uh, what it means to believe as we are entering the sermon today. Let me open this in prayer. Thank you for the truth, Lord. Thank you that we know the truth. May the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus enter our hearts in a deep and powerful way this very morning. And may we leave here more prepared to be your resurrection people than we ever have been. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you, uh, what do you believe is really true? And what governs your life? What kind of faith do you have? What do you believe is possible? Back when these uh, cars were first coming out this is like 25, more than 25 years ago, I think my brother Brad was riding along with a cousin of ours, an older cousin, um, uh, maybe five to ten years older, and uh, and Brad changed the radio station. He had, the, new, the new car had the, the deal where you could change the radio station on the steering wheel. And so Brad did that, and he realized that our cousin didn't understand what had happened. And so Brad saw an opportunity. And uh, he started to tell our cousin, well, yeah, this, this is new technology, and uh, what you do is you can just point at it. And you just kind of pop your finger and it change, change the station. And so my cousin started to do that. He was like, really? No. And Brad would change it with his thumb on the, on the steering wheel. He, no way. Look at this changing. And then Brad took it further. He started to, well, yeah, actually, you can just wink at it. You just go. And he had this guy. It's been a long time ago. I think this is right. Uh, he had this guy going along with all of this until he finally told him, no, this is I'm just, <laughs> just doing it over here with my fingers. You got hand to it, hand it to my cousin. He was ready to believe in possibilities that most people aren't. I want to tell you that today... Uh, Today of all days, we are called to believe in possibilities that a lot of people don't believe in. Because we live in a world where resurrection is true. It has happened. And because that can happen, even though a lot of people back then, everybody back then would have said that's not going to happen. It did happen. And the truth has been passed down through the ages now where we know what can happen. And that changes the way we encounter every single bit of life after that. I was raised in a context where it was very important to be able to argue well, at least to be a Christian, (laughs) the way I was a Christian anyway. And uh, I I, uh, argued with people from the time I was at elementary school. I was going to school with my my teachers, arguing with them about the way they did things wrong. And it was important to to be able to show them that I was right and they were wrong. And uh, eventually this rationalism that that governed my Christian life bled over into me needing to be able to prove that it's all true. And... uh, to show by argument that it's true. And uh, that's not all a bad thing, okay? I want to tell you that, that Christian apologetics, defense of the faith, has been a great help to me. One of the first things I remember getting into were arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. Do you know that just, for, I'm not talking about here as a Christian reading the Bible and saying it's true. I'm talking about evaluating from a logical, historical analysis perspective. Uh, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is astounding. And I read multiple debates on, on this issue, listening to both sides, Watched a debate or two, uh, listening to people. One of the leading atheists in the world, uh, Anthony Flew, he's dead now, but a British atheist, philosophical atheist, I remember him saying in a debate, he said Christians are completely reasonable for believing in the resurrection of, the, of Jesus from the dead. He just said they, they aren't reasonable for believing in God, so we've got to have another explanation. But the evidence is there. In fact, uh, the the first debate I ever read on this was uh, from a Christian philosopher named Gary Habermas debating Anthony Flew. And uh, it was evaluated by ten judges, four, uh, five of them philosophers. The philosophers voted four to one that the case for the resurrection won. And uh, the other professional speech judges debated, uh, uh, voted three to two or three to one to one. Somebody called it a draw. Maybe the philosopher called it a draw. Anyway, uh, and, and one of these guys at the beginning of the book, he gives his comments, I'll share it with you right here, on what happened as he was listening to this debate or reading the debate, whatever. I was surprised, shocked might be a more accurate word, to see how weak Flew's own approach was. That's Anthony Flew, the atheist. I was left with this conclusion. Since the case against the resurrection was no stronger than that presented by Anthony Flew, I would think it was time I began to take the resurrection seriously. Hmm. You can tell this is not somebody who's just already a believer. Somebody who just listened to the arguments with a fair mind. and said, maybe I ought to take this seriously. At the end of that debate, they had several people respond to it. One of them is a noted theologian, J.I. Packer. And he just talks about the the evidence for the resurrection, how, how it's just profoundly obvious when you think about what's happened. Here's what he says. We should consider the sheer impossibility of accounting for the triumphant emergence of Christianity in Jerusalem. This is what happened historically. Christianity emerged triumphantly in Jerusalem a faith based on acknowledging Jesus as crucified Messiah and risen Lord, that could never have happened without the supposition that his tomb was found empty. If the authorities could have produced Jesus' corpse, they would have exploded the resurrection faith for good. They would have, uh, the fact that it was not exploded indicates that they did not produce the corpse, and their failure to produce it shows that they could not produce it. What happened here? is that Christianity actually started with the resurrection. This is the truth. You know What you do is you start with historical facts that basically everybody acknowledges. Even, even the people who deny the resurrection have to deal with what historically is true. Christianity started somewhere. And it actually started in Jerusalem not long after they killed the guy that they claimed was raised. <laughs> that the whole thing gets started around. How do you explain that? How do you explain that there are multiple people going around fact Multiple people going around saying they had seen him alive after he was crucified. And then, you know, people try to explain, well, they had visions or they hallucinated. They thought they saw him or something. Um, We can do better than that. That's not the smartest explanation for these historical facts. If if people were just seeing visions, they would have gone to the tomb, got got the body out, said, hey, look, here he is. You guys are crazy. That's not what happened. Christianity triumphed because Christianity started with the historical reality of the resurrection. Those kind of things helped me when I was a young doubter, believing doubter, whatever you want to call it, somebody struggling with his faith. But I want to tell you there's something that helps me a lot more than that. I think Christian apologetics have their place. I have a master's degree in Christian apologetics, so I think they have their place. But as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate something much more than being able to argue for the truth of the faith. And that is knowing the risen Lord. And what I want to say to you is that for those of you who have believed for so long, those of you maybe who have had doubters and skeptics around you trying to undermine your faith, I want to tell you, listen, you're right. Okay? You're right, and you can win the argument. But that only takes you so far. And what you need is so much more than that. What we need is to know the Jesus that the early Christians knew. We want to start today in our text in John 20 looking at what's happening with Mary. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. We start with a weeping woman. And isn't it true that so much of life is found here? Weeping. Sadness, fear, confusion. This is where we begin so often. This is where our story begins here. Mary weeping because, if you followed our readings today, she thinks somebody's taken Jesus' body. And she's so sad that she's lost it. Sometimes, though, in the midst of our deepest grief and pain, God plants hope. And it's right there that we start to feel hope. But I have to tell you that that I sense, I'm not sure about this, but I sense in this story that there may be a hint of hope in what's happening. If you you listen to the readings today, what was happening is, is, is the disciples, they hear this and they take off running to the tomb. Why are they running? Maybe they think the body's been stolen, but maybe, maybe they have just a little bit of hope. Could it be? Could it be That there's a better ending than we've yet been willing to believe? Could it be that things are going to turn out and surprise me after all with the goodness of what God can do, with the goodness of what God will do? Maybe that's why they're running to the tomb. This hint of hope in their darkest, darkest hour. I want to invite you to have... If you're here today, especially at a dark place, I want to invite you to grasp on to a little glimmer of hope and to journey to that tomb with the disciples in their sadness. Mary is asked twice, actually, why she's crying. It may seem a little bit strange. I mean, imagine she's in she's in a graveyard. (laughs) Imagine somebody asking you at a funeral, why are you crying? Maybe the questions are meant to get her to reflect. Maybe the questions are there uh, to say, sometimes when we're sad, we should think twice about what's real and what's true. Why are you weeping, the angels asked her. And notice Mary's response. She's still living in a world that is bounded by human action. I mean, it's not that she doesn't believe in God or believe God can do things. She does, but she doesn't think God will do anything beyond death. She still thinks that's the final word. And so her answers have to do with them. Well, they have taken my Lord. They have laid him somewhere. I don't know where it is. Somebody had to have done it besides God. That's where we are a lot of times in life. Thinking that somebody had to have done something, but it can't be God. Somebody's got to do something about this, but it can't be God. The resurrection of Jesus, though, stops us and invites us to think, maybe God's going to do something, even in our lives. This is what Mary was about to find out. She thought, you see, that, that what she wanted, the reason she was crying is she had lost the body. She wanted to keep that body. She wanted to honorate, honor, she wanted to honor Jesus by keeping the body, decorate his tomb, sanctify his, his resting place. She thought the best she could do the, the rest of her life was to be close to his dead body. Boy, was she in for a surprise. There's something so much more. That God was gonna do for Mary. Throughout history, God has been doing things for people that they didn't really think were possible. To live in a world marked by the resurrection is to live in a world where the unthinkable happens. You know, just today, not, not in our time period right now, God is doing some powerful things across our nation and uh, some of you were with us a few weeks ago, two weeks ago was it when uh, we had a couple of professors here from, from Asbury and uh, they were talking about what happened up there and if you've followed any of, of that you know that uh, things are spreading and outpourings of the Holy Spirit are, are taking place across our our nation right now, maybe our world too. I might, you know, I'm not the quickest guy to jump on the bandwagon with these things. By the way, if I didn't know, you know some of the smartest people I know are up there uh, bearing witness uh, to these kind of things, um, I might be in a more skeptical place myself. But uh, why not believe that God is doing something today? He's already raised the dead. Some people think we may be coming on a third great awakening. Well, that can never happen. God's already done two of them. (laughs) That's what it would mean to have a third. And we live in a world where where God has raised Jesus from the dead. So maybe that's just the way it's going to be. Maybe he's going to do things when we're skeptical about it. Maybe he's going to do things when we're not planning for it. That's what he's always done. And most emphatically, he did it when he raised Jesus from the grave. I was talking to my dad a week or two ago, and he was telling me, my dad's not a guy to get carried away with things either. Uh, He was telling me about people that we both know who have changed uh, pretty dramatically in their understanding of the Christian faith. And he said these words, something along these lines to me then. He said, you know, if you had told me a while back that this would happen, I would have told you it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And so would everybody have said about Jesus when he was killed? It's impossible. <laughs> but we have a God of resurrection. We have a gospel of resurrection so we know that the impossible happens. Some of you are sitting in this room today and you know you would have said it's impossible. Your family would have said it's impossible. Your spouse would have said it's impossible. That what has happened for you would really happen. And that's because we have a God who raises the dead. There's a beautiful scripture that Paul uh Paul states for us, uh, what eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, this is what God has prepared for those who love him. That may not be the exact quote, but I'm in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. And you just think about that for a minute. You haven't yet seen what God has prepared for his people. You haven't yet heard about it. (laughs) You've got glimpses of it. You've got hints of it. But we don't know even yet. And I don't take that to mean just, oh, well, way, way off in the future it may happen. I believe that's true too. But I believe many times God brings his blessings into the present. And we cling to that. Are you open to God doing more than you previously thought possible? We just let him be God and run things? Are you open to that? The resurrection calls us to do that. Here in this text, I want to notice with you. Four things about Jesus, the risen Jesus who's encountered. Four revelations of the risen Jesus. We're not going to spend a long time on each of these. Notice first that the risen Jesus is a personal Jesus. He didn't suddenly raise and undergo a a transformation where he became a a cosmic stare off in the distance. He was still a person. And we see that most clearly when, when he's talking to Mary, The way she knows it's him is is she says he says her name, Mary. I don't know what what it was. I don't know how it was that he said it. Maybe it's been the way he said it in the past, and she recognized it immediately. Something clicked with her when he said her name. And then she's over there, and he's saying, hey, don't cling to me. At least one way to picture that is she's already got him grabbed, you know. Don't cling to me, I've got some things to do still. (laughs) Um, This is the personal Jesus, revealing himself with a personal statement. Not with an argument, but with a personal revelation. You know, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus had said this, talking about the good shepherd. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Do you know that Jesus saying your name personally, that's not just for Mary. That's for you. And that's for me. To be in a personal relationship with Jesus. Years ago, I was preaching at a big Uh, gathering of of people who shared my background and and as I told you there's a lot of legalistic type thoughts that went around there but I said something about a personal relationship with Jesus I think I was critiquing it actually saying how it can be tried or it's not enough something along those lines but I must have said something uh, enough about it to say it was a positive thing that, uh, that you would have a personal relationship with Jesus and I found out later that I had been criticized for being positive about a personal relationship with Jesus and I want to ask well what what do you want? if not a personal relationship with Jesus. (laughs) No relationship with Jesus? An impersonal relationship with Jesus? You see, having a personal relationship with Jesus, that's knowing the good shepherd. That's the one who calls us by name. And he didn't just want to know some people back in the past and send them out and say, yeah, you can know something about him. He wants to know his people. He's the shepherd. He wants to know his sheep. He can say your name. And in a sense, we are all called to hear the risen Jesus speak our name. I want to say to you today that what we need in the church is not more arguments, but more relationships with Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I've already told you that the arguments have their place. They can strengthen our faith. They're not all bad. But there are many people who can make those arguments well, and they haven't yet encountered the risen Christ. And as long as we've not encountered him personally, learned to live and walk with him, our faith is not where Jesus wants to take it. And it's not the gift that it's meant to be to us. What we're made for is to hear him look at me and say, Luke, and me to say, Rabbi, my Lord, it's you. I know your voice. You know me. I am yours. And no argument will ever substitute for that kind of walk with Jesus personally. He calls you into, as the risen glorious Lord today, He calls you into that. He calls you to know Him, for Him to know you by name. E. Stanley Jones, and I think I shared this with you one time before, E. Stanley Jones a great missionary. First sermon he ever gave, he was a I guess I don't know exactly his age, but a young man. And uh, he stood up to preach, and he got up there, he said a word that wasn't really a word, and he got all embarrassed by it. He saw a college, student, college girl out in the audience drop her head and smile. And he got all embarrassed. And uh, he lost, he completely lost his sermon. You know, every preacher's nightmare. We just up there. We, where'd it go? can't say anything. And uh, finally, he just stepped down from the pulpit, and as he did, God spoke to him. And he said, haven't I done, and this is rough, you know, this is basically, I'm going off memory here, but it's, uh, he said, haven't I done anything for you? And, and, and Stanley was like, well, yes. Well, can't you tell the people that? And so he got down at the bottom and he said, friends, I see I can't preach. But he said, um, I love Jesus. And you guys knew who I used to be. And you know who I am now. And Jesus has done that for me. And I love him, and I want to serve him. And that's what he said, and he was done. And afterwards, somebody came up to him, a, another kid in the, in the church came up to him and said, Stanley, I want to know what you know. I want to find what you've found. And Stanley said he found it right then and there. And he said, I learned a lesson then that I never forgot. God wants me not to be his lawyer, but to be his witness. And God grant us people in the body of Christ today who can stand from a place of personal knowledge, walking with Jesus, and witness to him. Not argue for him, although that has its place. Not just stand up and lead people in a sermon or in worship or whatever, but people who can speak from a personal knowledge and say, I know the Lord and I want you to know him too. That's our calling. That's what the risen Jesus does for us. He meets us and equips us to be people who know. The risen Jesus is a loving Jesus. Just really quickly here as he's talking uh, to Mary and saying, I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This strikes me as such a deliberate statement of love. And Just think about this. What had just happened with all of these guys? They had all failed miserably. They had abandoned their leader in his darkest hour. Peter had openly denied him. They turned their back on him. This would be the time, and perhaps this is what they'd be expecting. Well, he's going to start with a new group. He's resurrected Starting over, go find some people who actually stand by him, right? Jesus will have none of it. And I think this is an implicit message sent to his disciples right here. He says, those are my brothers. Those who forsook me are my brothers. Go tell them that I'm ascending to my father. He's also their father. My God is their God. This is the message for the failures. Who in here has not sometime felt like you completely let Jesus down? And maybe quite frequently. Man, I've ruined everything. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, come on. You're with me. The Father loves you. That's what he told him earlier. The Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is what we sometimes use the word grace for. Or mercy in the Christian faith. God's love for the failures for the people who cannot cut it. Which happens to be everybody. (laughs) And when we think we've ruined it, he says, come on back with me. But don't I have to fix things first? No! (laughs) Actually, you don't. The resurrection has fixed things. (laughs) Jesus says, you come with me. The message to you out there, you failures. (laughs) Those of you who have come feeling like a failure to you today, the message to you especially is the love of the risen Jesus. The forgiveness of the risen Jesus. The risen Jesus is an exalted Jesus. The other disciples told Thomas, Thomas wasn't there. You remember the reading. So they told him, we've seen the Lord. He says, unless I see him, unless I touch him, I won't believe. Eight days later, Jesus appears in the room, even though the doors are locked. That's cool. Something about the resurrection body there. He stood among them with kindness saying, hey, be at peace. It's all cool. i want to use contemporary language. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And we can't just read this in a monotone. We'll never get even close to what's happening. I can picture Thomas here falling on his knees. My Lord and my God. What happened with the resurrection, it wasn't just that, that people figured out, oh, there's been a resurrection. What it was is it validated everything they had, want, they had longed to believe about Jesus. Who is this man who t- just claims authority over demons, who claims authority over all our teachers? Who is this man who walks around and forgives sins and heals every disease and it doesn't even seem hard for him? Who is this guy who can speak to the raging waters and calm them? Who does things like that? Maybe is he is he more than human? Oh, and guess what? It turns out you can't kill him. And Thomas, you see, encounters the question: not just what Jesus, but who Jesus. And he says, my God. This isn't just someone blessed by God, anointed by God, appointed by God, sent by God, used by God, equipped by God. This is God. Validated, vindicated in the resurrection. May I say to you this morning, the risen Jesus is not just to be admired. He is to be worshipped. I love how we've got a culture now where a number of you uh, come forward uh, and you'll kneel at this cross especially during our communion time some, some of you at your seats and I think that's great I want you to know something when you do that you're not doing Jesus a favor you're just getting in the appropriate position because the resurrection shows us that Jesus is highly exalted Thomas got this and we'll say what you will about Thomas but when he believed he believed all the way and may God grant us many of us you know we relate to Thomas as a doubter but may God grant us to relate to Thomas the believer and that we have a faith that leads us to fall down and worship before the Lord Jesus and say my Lord and my God last point the risen Jesus is a summoning Jesus that may not be the best word but it's the best I've got for you he summons us to faith. And I like the way the NIV says, says it. Uh, when, he, when he appears to Thomas, he says, stop doubting and believe. Maybe it's time for those of us in the church to stop doubting and believe. Oh, I know most of us here would say we have some kind of faith. Maybe it's time we came to a full faith. Maybe it's time we came to the faith that Thomas had that led him to say, yes, I will worship. I will recognize you completely for who you are, whatever that means for my life. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas, as a predecessor to modern empiricists, people who think all you can know is what you taste and and see and feel. and see. uh, I already said see. See it twice what you hear that that kind of thing Thomas is there he's he's acting like that you need to you need to be able to put your hands on something to believe it but may I say to you that Thomas in doubting was not smart we, we live in a time when people think they're smart for doubting it's just good to be agnostic But the truth is, it's not smart to be agnostic when you've got good reasons to believe something. Dallas Willard says if you're at the airport and somebody asks you what gates you're flying out of, and you say, oh, I'm agnostic about that. That doesn't make you smart. Thomas had the testimony of all his brothers and sisters and comrades who were saying, look, we've seen this. And at some point, it became an obstinance in him. I don't know what all he was feeling. Maybe his emotions were just too strong, overwhelmed by all that happened. Whatever was going on, he just said, no, I won't. There's a place where faith is an intellectual thing, okay? And we do have to deal with those kind of things. I wouldn't tell you just to believe something because, because, well, you're just supposed to believe it. For example, if I were to say to you, I don't mean any harm in saying this, but if I were just to tell you, hey, you need to believe that the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl next year. Mm right. Uh, now, Charles, that's rude for you to laugh. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Kansas City Chiefs up there. No, I'm kidding. Um, I don't, you don't have to just make yourself believe something that seems like it's not likely. <laughs> but you see, so at some point, faith is, moves beyond an intellectual thing, and it becomes a part of our will. At some point, we're refusing to believe because we think that's smarter, because we have emotional baggage, because we're mad, because things haven't worked out in our life like we wanted them to. See, Thomas had every good reason to believe. He just said, no, I will trust myself and no one else. That's not smart. Living that way can mess up your life. I want you to know that this text is given to us. John wrote so that we could believe. The apostles preached so that we can believe. People have died. They've given their lives through the centuries so that we can believe. What would it take for you to fully believe? What would it take for you to go beyond the half-hearted faith that says, yeah, I come to church. I try to act with propriety in my life. What would it take for you to say, no, I should kneel down. I should kneel. For the magnificent Lord Jesus and proclaim you're my Lord and my God and to let all of life flow out of that proclamation. Could it be that what you've thought is a smart mind might actually have been a hard heart? Could it be that today, the risen Lord, right now, okay, let, let, let the Lord speak to you now, okay? Could it be that the risen Lord, who is among us today, is inviting you to truly and fully believe? Blessed are those who have not seen. Now, That means mean people who believe dumb stuff. Mm -hmm. But blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. They've come to trust Jesus. They've come to trust God the Father through Jesus. I don't know what all he means by blessedness there, but I'll tell you something. It is a blessed life to really trust him. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. The songwriter says, I'm so glad I've learned to trust you. Precious Jesus, Savior friend. Would you learn to trust him today? Would you receive the blessing of faith? And the risen Jesus? He calls you. We could sit up here and talk about evidence all day long. Testimony. Miraculous things. The brilliant And love soaked saints through the ages who would tell you the reason they are that way is because they know Jesus. They've heard him say their name. We could talk about that. But ultimately, it comes down to you saying, Lord, I am willing. Guys, he wants to bless you. Are you willing? To bow before him like Thomas did and say, my Lord and my God. Or will you stand obstinately and say, well, if I could put my finger in his wounded side, maybe then. Maybe then I would sell out all the way and make my life all about him. But not until then. I want to say to you, if you're doing that, it's probably not because you're just intellectual. (laughs) It's probably because you're unwilling And today the Lord invites you to become willing.